Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Upgrade Thought. On this episode, I will be talking to Joe Carbone. Joe is a certified mental performance consultant, meaning that he helps people in various fields improve their thought processes to perform at their best. Joe has worked with athletes of all types, but currently works for Magellan Federal. Magellan Federal is a company that provides wellness services to the military. Joe's work is to help soldiers work through the psychological challenges that present themselves in the day-to-day training environment. Get ready to learn about the mindset of an elite soldier, how the story of his high school baseball teammate got him into performance psychology, what his thoughts are on mindfulness and diaphragmatic breathing, what he means by stupidity over malice, how performance psychology can be applied across all disciplines, how the movie Finding Nemo has helped his soldiers, and more. Enjoy the show. All right, Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. First question, what does Finding Nemo have to do with psychology? So in some of the work I do as a contractor with, that, with Magellan Federal, the, one of the training events I do with my soldiers is survival swim. And a lot of them are really scared to, uh, of water. Some of them have never swam before. Some have had bad experiences. And there's a research article that uh, I I tend to refer back to where we talk about self-talk. Talk talk about self-talk and motivational self-talk in particular. And one of the things I tell them, when you're in the pool and your brain's starting to spin a thousand miles a minute, just tell yourself, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. And what the research uh, tells us that that increases... uh, self-compassion and it lowers competitive anxiety in novice to uh, beginner and beginner swimmers, which for the ones who are really the most scared. What are some ways that people can optimize their self-talk? So I guess let's talk about the the application side. Uh, How can people apply the fascinating findings from these studies? So the biggest things when it comes to self-talk is that it has to, doesn't have to always be positive. It's a really big misconception that everything that you, that you, say to yourself has to be positive in reality that's not the case if you focus only on the positive then some people don't get motivated by that some people don't get uh some people it doesn't affect them as well so what it really needs to be is productive so if it's going to be negative you can sometimes be uh trash talking yourself into just into getting that last little bit of energy last little, little bit of focus you need Maybe you're in the gym and you're trying to get that one, that your one rep max, you're trying to get that last uh, rep at that new weight. You may not be saying yourself the nicest things in the world, but if it's going to get you to move those weights, it's going to get you to move those weights. The other piece too, when it comes to motivational self-talk is just knowing yourself, knowing yourself, knowing what works. If you're going to be telling yourself things and they're going to be live and they're live and they're not going to pass that check, then it's not going to be worth doing. It's actually going to do more harm than good. So a lot of it is kind of that self-awareness of what motivates me, what is it going to be that gets me going, and then also keeping yourself productive, keeping it intentional and deliberate, and then keeping it present-focused as much as you can. Keep it task-focused, pres- uh, present-focused, and that's where uh, the research, the present-focused piece is something that's come out more recently from uh, 
uh, for my illegals, Rob Mabili out of uh, University of Miami. Awesome. So I'd also like to transition. You did some really interesting research at West Point. Uh, talk about that. So I was lucky enough when I was in my graduate program to do a little bit intern to do an internship at the Center for Enhanced Performance at West Point. Uh, while I was there, Dr. Zin uh, Nate Zinzer, who has since left the program, was there, uh, and he had me doing some really, he had me deep dive a little bit into some really interesting stuff involving sleep. And as a second year grad student, I hadn't really dug into that too much. But the sleep research that I found was really interesting, both for athletes and honestly for non-athletes, specifically involving how, like, what the different functions of sleep are and where the how different amounts of not different amounts that we sleep at night can create deficits in uh, both physical and uh, cognitive benefits. What would you say is the biggest misconception about sleep? So there's a couple. So the first one is that there are people kind of misinterpret a couple of research studies that show that there's a small percentage of the population that doesn't need eight to 10 hours of sleep or six to eight hours of sleep. I don't apologize. The, everybody thinks they're in the 1%. It's like the one to 5% that don't actually need it. And that is kind of a bias that people have, but absolutely that you, most human beings need six to eight hours of sleep to get the bare minimum. And what people also don't realize is that in your first six hours of sleep, your body produces 70% of human growth hormone. So realistically, if you don't get six to eight hours, at least six hours of sleep, you do not get to square back to square one that your body started at the day before. You are actively going to be more sore. If you're an athlete or you're a performer, you're going to be more sore. Your muscles are going to grow less. And that is one thing that people, you know, I'm starting to see more people understanding that, but for a long time, that's something that people just didn't understand, especially young athletes as well. Yeah. So let's transition into your story. What do you do now? And what were the events in your life that got you to where you are today? So as I kind of mentioned a little bit, I work with the Army. My, my job title is Master's Lanes Trainer Performance Expert. I work for a company called Magellan Federal. We, we are Army contractors. Uh, Magellan Federal has a con uh, is the holds the contract with the Army for the Ready and Resilient Program. Uh, people may also know it as the Master Resilience Trainer course. Um, that's what we do primarily. We run the Master Resilience Trainer courses at different installations across the U.S. and a couple in Europe and uh, Europe and Italy or Europe and Asia. And we also do a lot of work with performance enhancement training with our soldiers. So the performance that's her piece of my job title is the, is the uh, goes along with that. I have two master's degree from, in sports psychology from Springfield College, and my undergrad is in sports psychology from West Virginia. And currently, I work at Fort Moore down in Georgia. Uh, what got me here? The the long story. Uh, started out just growing up in New York, similar to you, Cooper, and growing up as a Yankees fan, got to see a lot of really great players in the mid to, mid to late 2000s come into the Yankees and not quite live up always to the potential that we had was put on them. And from there, uh, 
they would then be there for three, four years, they'd leave, and then they were when they left, they were as good as they were when they before they got to the Yankees. And over time I started to hear people talking about the mental side of the game, people talking about some people can't handle the bright lights of New York, the pressure of New York. And that started to make things make me question a lot of things. And then like every kid, like a lot of kids I should say that grow up playing sports, you wanna you wanna play your sport professionally. And very early on I learned, yeah, that's not gonna happen for me. But when I was in high school, I developed a love for psychology. I developed a love for sport. And I realized, hey, you can put these two things together and do sports psychology. And after that, and at that point, I was like, hey, this is what I want to do. I had a high school teammate who really could have used a sports psychologist or mental skills coach for what he was going through. He was very, very talented physically. Uh, when we were growing up, I was uh, I played catcher growing up. I could we would throw side sessions, throw uh, throw bullpens, uh, both like for our high school team and just at home. Could put down the glove. He would hit the glove perfect every time. I could close my eyes, wouldn't have to move it. We'd go to our high school games for our first three seasons, and he had like a six plus ERA over three years. It was not great. He was always up in his own head. His stuff just wasn't the same. We go to our senior year, he kind of learned how to manage it on his own. He grew up a lot. And all of a sudden, he went from a six plus ERA to leading the league and was a top five pitcher in the in the section of me in our section in New York with like a one six eight ERA his senior uh, our senior year. The potential for that was always there, but he was just always up in his own head. And that kind of just sealed the deal for me. I was like, yep, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I want to be able to help people like him over the course of our, over the course of my career. What do you think it was that clicked for him as a senior? He stopped giving a damn. He just stopped giving a damn what other people thought. He was very much always, he was the opposite of what I said the positive self-talk needs to be, which is present focused. He was never present focused. His brain was always wondering, uh, dwelling in what ifs, what about this, what about this, what about this? He kind of was in the shadow of his older brother a little bit at times. And once he got out of that shadow, he just kind of said, screw it, we're going to do the thing. And that's a reason I've learned over time. That's a really positive and productive way to be as a performer. Screw it, let's do it. Yeah. So just to contextualize for people without a background in the sport and performance psychology world, what does a sports psychologist or mental performance consultant do? So what we do is we help optimize performance for anybody who's doing any kind of performance or, or any kind of high, uh, high demand career. So there are people who are, who are in our fields who work in we're in the dugouts in Major League Baseball and in Minor League Baseball. I have many friends who do that. People who work in collegiate athletics, uh, people who work in work with high schools, and there are also people. Like I have an old coworker who works and does team development with nurses in Atlanta, uh, up in Atlanta, in for one of the healthcare systems up there. Working with stock traders, business consultants, you name it. Our job is to help optimize what you do. Whatever you do, not by teaching you more about what to do technically, tactically, but by working with you to streamline your thought process to help manage your thoughts and your emotions and your focus so that you can actually do the things that you're trained to do better. The, there's a lot of times there's a disconnect 
or there's just something that's not 100% optimized mentally that's going, that prevents you from doing exactly what you need to do when you need to do it. And that's where we come in. So what was the state of the performance psychology field when you chose to pursue it? So I know that even today, it's it's still kind of a, a newer field. It's, it's a little bit niche uh, within the psychology realm. So was there, an ele- was there an element of fear and anxiety for you when you chose to jump into a field that was relatively new and developing? State of the field, oh man. 10 years ago when I started really pursuing it, it was less of a fear for me and more just nobody knew what it was. Really nobody in my immediate loop knew where it was. Uh, growing up in Bradside, New York City, in the suburbs of New York City, uh, nobody, like I would go to the athletic, high school athletic director, he knew it, he knew nothing. Talk to my coaches, they really didn't know what it was. It, I had to go and actually seek out graduate uh, professors and graduate programs in like uh, that were local to me and to be able to find resources and in the and that was kind of indicative about how the field was really ready to grow and expand uh, exponentially like it has in the last five or six years uh but when i was going through yeah it was it was tough to find information asp was really hard to was not geared towards people who were 17 18 years old 16 years old looking to get into this and over time, it has really shifted, and it's been amazing to see young uh, young people as young as sixteen years old. I'm like, hey, I really want, I really like, I really want to do what you want to do. How do I do it? And the resources are getting there a lot more. Um, since I've gotten into the field, there's become a lot. Perform uh, working in professional sports. There have been a tremendous amount more opportunities before that. Uh, before that, there really weren't. Uh, and when I was in grad school, or when I was an undergrad, the collective bargain agreement in Major League Baseball actually added a clause in it that every Major League team had to have a sports psychology consultant present or available for the players, which was huge. That opened up dozen of probably over a dozen jobs for people at the highest levels, which then filtered up and opened up more jobs for people who were coming out of grad school. The Army contract has expanded by close to 100 people since I graduated, since I started grad school. And again, more jobs, more people, more publicity for the profession. People just know more about it. Nobody knew what sports psychology was in my high school when I was there ten years ago. I was I went back and did a and did a lesson with my old band with my old uh, high school band director when I was home back in April and asked the question, "Who knows what sports psychology is?" And there were seven or eight kids who put their hands up. And now some of them were pro or high level athletes, like high level high school athletes. But if I had said, hey, does anybody know what sports psychology is to the people who I went to school with, my entire class of 300, I think one person may have put their hand up and get that. So that shows you the growth that this field has had in the last 10 years, and it's been amazing to see. Yeah. Uh, Would you predict that over time, people in other fields outside of, like, uh, you work in the military, but that and sports, do you see the field kind of expanding past those? Because, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about this more, but the principles of sports psychology are just, are basically, how can you, how can you be present and, and focus on the activity that you're doing now and do it 
to the best of your uh, capabilities and potential. So, and that's something that I think can be applied to everything in life. So would you predict that this field grows outside of the sport world? Absolutely. I think when you kind of hit the nail on the head there with the, the fact that the principles of what we teach are not rooted in sport, they're just rooted in performance. Uh, the Army has had this contract, has had the, the master's ladies trainer and the founder different names, R2, CSF2, things like that, for over 10 years now. The Air Force now has a contract. There was, before COVID hit, there was a contract that I just started up with, uh, this, with the TSA. There are people who are at the top of our field who are either industrial organizational psychologists who also have a performance, who also have some performance training as well, or just sport and performance people who work with the Green Berets, who work with the SEAL teams, who work with, you name it, like of the special forces, elite operators in the military, they're all over the place. Um, you see it a lot in private practice where more and more now you have parents who want their kids to get exposed to this or younger. And then he's going to continue to, hey, to be able to say, hey, I, I had this experience. I remember working with this sports psychologist as a kid. Now I'm doing this thing in business. I want to expand it out here. And you have companies like Deloitte who have a couple of really great people who I know personally who work with them. Uh, it's all over the place and it's going to continue to expand. But as we see, it was mirrored in baseball and collegiate athletics as well. People need to start seeing the value and it takes time. People have to, people will oftentimes come through the program or at least someone who's new and go, that, per, that team is doing something great. That group is doing something really good. I want to mirror this. I want to create something similar to it. And it, it grows, it takes time and all of a sudden it'll blow up. And you'll see this rapid expansion and then it'll cool down. And then it'll rapidly expand and it'll cool down eventually. Yeah. So I want to transition into some of your advice for young athletes listening. So uh, as far as my kind of personal story with these principles, as a basketball player, uh, one of the main things I was told is that I should play with more confidence. That's That was always what I heard. Um, I was the type of player who I'd, I'd play well, really well in practice, and it wouldn't, similarly to the to your high school teammate, like I would I would have trouble – carrying it over and, and bringing it out in the games. So first of all, what is, what is confidence in your eyes and how can it be improved? So confidence in my eyes, the way I kind of think about confidence is the trust and certainty in yourself to be able to do something. Like how much do I trust myself that I that I know what I'm doing, that I can do this thing. And we in our curriculum for R2, like we, I think it's a, uh, the degree of certainty that you have to, that you believe that you can complete a task, I think is basically the definition that we use. And for me, the way, it, there's, this, uh, there's this quote that I heard originally from Ken Revisa, but it comes from somewhere. He got it from the military. That you, have, you, have, you have to train your trust to trust your training. And train your trust and trust your training, like, they go hand in hand. And one of the ways you can kind of train that trust, train that confidence is to, uh, is by, is by fitness. Sometimes it's by failures. Sometimes learning what not to do. 
it's by amplifying the successes, viewing those successes, the times where maybe you didn't play well. Maybe it was you came in as a basketball player, you had you played five minutes, but you played five minutes right before the end of the quarter. Hey, that was a great five minutes. Let's see what did I do that allowed me to be really good. And analyze and kind of after the game, saying, hey, what went well about those different things? And improve it and say, hey, like, let's repeat that. Let's say like, what went well and repeat that stuff. And then identifying, hey, what are the specific things that maybe didn't go great? And then coming up with that plan to improve them. Coming up with that plan, some ideas, say, hey, what can I do to improve? And that will also help you build that confidence from maybe from the times where you didn't succeed as much to be able to say, hey, I now know what I need to do better. Instead of, I don't know what I need to do, I don't know what happened. That's one way you can start to increase it. But also with confidence, it can be tricky. It's everybody has different things that they can do to improve their confidence. Some people need to be really quiet mentally. Some people need to be really moving mentally. So if you, again, it comes back to the self-awareness piece of when I'm working with somebody, whether they're a soldier or they're an athlete, it's when you are doing well, when you're in practice, where is your mind at? Are you really focused? Are you really relaxed? Where's your head at? And then going from there. I talk to my soldiers a lot. I try and lean on their past performances in sport. I had one other guy recently who he was a soft, he was really struggling to get a mindset for shooting, uh, to be able to qualify on his M4 on his rifle. And we were talking about a little bit. I was like, hey, what sports did you play? This, that, the other. He was a defense, he was a soccer player, he was a center, he was a center back, a center defender. And we talked about like how where his mind was, where like where his mind was, what it was doing when he was observing the play. And I was listening to him, I was like, try that. Try and get yourself back to that mindset. And his eyes were like, What the hell are you talking about? And I was like, Do you trust me? He's like, Yep. And I was like, okay, try it. He came back and he's like, it worked. And a week later, he was telling me how, and two weeks later, I think, a week, something like that, he was telling me about how he went from like shooting like an eight or a 10 to shooting almost expert, which is a 36. He shot 33 on his, on his record call. And again, it's all about just understanding where you want to be. And if you can get yourself to where you want to be, what's going to help you, that's going to also help you build that confidence. Can you give an outline of what the mind of an elite soldier or military personnel what what does that look like and then what are the what are the ways that you often see people deviate from that and then how do you how do you help kind of fill in those gaps i'd say you should, i would say for the most part the biggest common thread is it's a very simple thought process it is a, what is the mission? How do we accomplish the mission? What do we need to do to accomplish the mission? There's the more things that you have going on, the more variables you have going on mentally, the more your energy is going to be divided, the more your thoughts are going to be divided up and there's less focus on the task. And when I look at the soldiers that I've worked with, uh, the basic trainees I worked with that have been the, high, the best performers, they're the ones who can lock into what that one singular thing that they need to do is and do it when they need to do it be present and do what they need to do and they also then can bring themselves back to being present to being able uh, to that moment when something does happen 
And that would, I would say, be the biggest kind of piece that I see and where I try and coach with my athletes and with my soldiers is just being present, being able to stay calm under pressure. How do you then, when you feel your body starting to speed up, you feel that fight or flight response kicking in? How do you calm that down so that you can then get your mind back online, get that thinking brain back online? I think those are that's usually the, those are the biggest things when I think about my best soldiers that I've worked with. So it sounds like simplifying the almost the, what's going on in your mind. It needs to be as simple as possible and as narrow as possible. And it's just you you almost handpick like what is it that I need to focus on right now, and then everything else. Whenever whenever you find yourself in those other areas, you have to redirect your attention. Correct. I would say yes. I would say the only piece that, that I would kind of push back against is narrow because if you get too narrow you put on the blinders too much and you end up getting tunnel vision and you miss information around you the idea is that they're deliberate about what they what their focus is where they're putting their focus where they're putting their energy they're not thinking about what mre they're going to have like what like army lunch that they're going to have later that day but they're ready and able to react to different situations but uh, while still being able to keep focus on the task if that makes sense. They're allowed, they're focusing on something very specific while being able to handle things that are outside in their environment when they come up. It's pre-planned, it's deliberate, and it's very, and it's not, not always simple, but it's specific. Because the research, well, as research shows that our brains just do better with specific information. The more specific and intentional you can be with your thoughts, the more likely you are to execute them properly and how you want them to. And this translate also translates to sport because all of a sudden, if you're thinking about seven different things instead of just thinking about the play you have to execute if you're a basketball player, you're not going to be really fully focused on that play. But if you're on that play and saying, hey, I know where I need to be, I know where everybody else needs to be, I'm going to worry more about what I, where I need to be and what I'm going to do with the ball, you get to that spot quicker. It's a lot less mental effort to try and then juggle all those thoughts versus I know where I need to be and then I'm going to react next one thing at a time. Yeah. It seems like there are some parallels with mindfulness because, mm -hmm. uh, when you practice mindfulness, that's, that's basically what you're doing. You're, you're noticing when your mind drifts and then you're bringing it back to, to the, the focal point, what you're deliberately, uh, placing attention on. So what are your thoughts on, uh, people implementing a formal mindfulness meditation practice into their daily routine or is it do you find that the framework is valuable of of mindfulness but you don't necessarily need to practice it separately like can you just implement it into your life without having to train it for say five to ten minutes on a regular basis what talk to me about mindfulness what are your thoughts there so i love mindfulness it is something that i strive to put it more into my day i just i struggle with to get the practice consistently myself, but I mean, but I try my best to put the tenets of mindfulness into everything that I do. There's this amazing definition that I heard from John Kabat-Zinn that I saw that's in a John Kabat-Zinn interview. And it's the simplest definition of mindfulness ever, the idea of paying attention on purpose in the moment, not judgmentally. And he says it's like an interview with the New York Times on YouTube. And it's like the first 30 seconds of the video, that's it. And I'm just like, and I clip that and I use that all the time when I'm giving 
reputations outside of the army. And I do think it's super valuable. If you can go and you can start training mindfulness, you uh, start training that, that, that mindfulness practice and doing it in a way that just you have to practice. You have to, it's a skill you have to practice because it's really hard to keep our brains still and quiet. It's just like when you're talking about diaphragmatic breathing. If you do it twice and then you don't do it again until you need it most, you're not going to be able to get the same results as someone who practices every day. Steph Curry, for example, doesn't, didn't get his, didn't just overnight learn his ability to drop his heart rate by a ridiculous amount. I don't want to say the wrong number, but to listeners, you can Google Steph Curry, deliberate breathing or diaphragmatic breathing, and you will find the article where it's like 30 or 40 beats per minute. He can drop it in 30 seconds. Again, 30 seconds, not a deep out, 30 second timeout. He didn't get that overnight. Mindfulness being the same way, you have to have that deliberate practice of keeping your mind where it is. But also, I had a professor actually at West Point, right as I was leaving West Point, who she had just started up, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Cat, uh, Cat Longshore. She is a huge mindfulness proponent, and she and I had talked about right before I left how. With mindfulness practice, it's usually better even rather than every day for five to 10 minutes, you're better off doing longer sessions more less, a little less frequently, like train for half an hour every like twice a week instead of for five minutes every 10, uh, every day. And she likened it to running. If you're trying to learn to be a distance runner, would you run 10 minutes every day to build your endurance? Or would you run half an hour every three days? To become a distance runner. And because of the fatigue that comes on, the mental fatigue that can come on from that extended focus, you want to train it, start training it consistently, but then also push it further. I know that kind of went a little off track from what you want to get to. No, no, that's that's fascinating because it, it makes sense because all of the activities that I want to train my attention for are at, like at least half an hour probably an hour like if i if i want to train my attention to all right let's start with sports to to play a full basketball game and be focused for as long as i possibly can that's going to be that's an hour long activity or if i want to be able to sit through a class without drifting off too much that's 45 minutes minimum as well so that makes a lot of sense um are there any other habits that people can implement to train their parasympathetic nervous system a huge piece that i have found is about how you attribute like what you do you think of something as a threat or is it more of a challenge do you view something as something as, as something is coming at you happening to you versus something is just happening because if you use coming to something as hey, this is a threat your parasympathetic nervous system is going to shoot to the roof but if you can pause and take a moment and diaphragmatic breathing is a huge thing that I just, the moment I learned it, I started trying to recondition myself to breathe. I was a chest breather my whole life. Um, I would say that just breathing and then taking a moment to understand is something happening to you or is this just something that's happening and you're kind of just there. Those are kind of, you can start to understand that you're, sympathetic nervous system is going to shoot through the roof a lot less frequently. I talk to my soldiers a lot because 
for reference point, my groups I work with are together for 22 weeks at a time. And there's always some kind of turmoil that's going on. Some uh, they, people get on each other's nerves. They want to just either at each other's throats at times, especially early on. And I have to remind them of this idea of when something can be equally attributed, attributed to malice and stupidity, generally speaking, it's safer to say stupidity, uh, attributed to stupidity over malice. And if you do that, it's a lot easier to say, okay, this person just made a mistake versus this person is actively coming at me. And you, again, it's going to calm that idea and calm the anger that's associated with that, triggering that fight or flight response. And it's going to, again, help you keep your parasympathetic nervous system more in line versus uh, activating up your, uh, your fight or flight response, your sympathetic. Yeah. Okay. Back to the conversation about um, athletes. And then I want to come back to the, the military stuff because it's, fascinating yeah i wanted to ask what would you say to and this this can also just be for people in life doesn't just need to be restricted to athletes but one of the one of the most common concerns is uh being in a slump what do you say what do you say to someone who's in a in a period of suboptimal performance i would i would ask them to think of, to kind of, when I work with athletes like this, I kind of have them jotting down and writing down where their thoughts are right now. Like if they were in their last couple of games versus some of their best performances, what are they thinking? Because you can see it on paper. It's very different usually. Usually you're much closer to a flow state when you're performing at your best. Flow state meaning like you're just in, you're locked in, you're in the zone. They're usually, people are usually more focused on just very simple linear thoughts it's what am i doing what like what's the play in front of me what do i need to do and just seeing and doing a lot calmer a lot slower a lot more task focused rather than self-focused the problem one of the things that you see a lot with people getting into slumps is they become like hyper analytical about what they're doing you start for instance a basketball guy i would imagine that you probably have had your shares of like days where you were just on fire the, bat, the hoop looked like a hula hoop, right? On those days, well, how much were you actually thinking about your jump shot? Zero. Right? You're not thinking about your jump shot. You're just catching the ball and, and shooting that and putting it up, and that's it. But on the days where your first three shots and warm-ups are breaking out or rimming out, where do your thoughts start to go immediately? Every single, like, what is my wrist doing? What is my elbow doing? Where are my feet? <laughs> Am I putting too much on it? <laughs> Maybe you're all you're thinking about. Oh, do I need to adjust my timing so that the because there's a firm spot on the rim or something like that? No. And all of a sudden you start thinking and trying to do too much in your mind as you're thinking, when in reality you have this trusting mindset. Uh, I'm blanking on his name. All of a sudden, uh, about someone I know who's a former West Virginia doc student has this idea of like thinking and trusting mindsets with shooting. Uh, and he. He's an amazing consultant. I'm gonna have him. I tell you, I'll give you the, his name in a second uh, when I remember it. But in his book, Bullseye Mind, uh, Bullseye Mindset, he talks about this a ton. And it's that same idea: Are you thinking while well, you should be trusting yourself? And you trust your jump shot. You trust your jump shot. You're you don't need to worry about it. But all of a sudden, you start thinking when you should be executing and trusting. It all goes to it all goes to hell in a handbasket, so to speak. 
So I would say trust yourself. You're, if you are an athlete, you're a performer, your skill set got you to where you are. Yeah. Sometimes you can, sometimes you need, you need, you need to make adjustments and that happens. Trust your coaches on that. But if you, even Kobe, even Kobe has had his games where he had, he was in a shooting slump. He shot his way out of the slump. If you're, if you are an athlete, don't change what you do in terms of your thought process. If you're slumping, get back to what you want to be doing best. This is why I like with my athletes to identify what they're doing well when they're succeeding. They always have something to go back to. There's something that focusing on this one thing that you've been doing consistently, you notice your mind's coming off a bit, let's bring it back. And it may not follow, success may not follow immediately, but it'll get you closer to getting out of that slump. Change as little as you can, but just about where your thoughts go, bring them back to the task, bring them back to what you need to focus on and identify those things and, you're, and you will hopefully break out of that slump a little bit quicker. Yeah. It is, it is a challenging balance though, because when I'm in practice, I have to focus on those things or else my mechanics aren't going to improve, but in the game, it doesn't serve me to be focusing on that. So, uh, so would... something along with that, if you think about it, the pressure and the speed of the game, like even in practice, if you're scrimmaging in practice, are you thinking about the mechanics of your jump shot? No. That's the, and that's the key. If you're drilling, if you're trying to learn and develop, absolutely focus on the specifics, analyze in those moments. But then when it's time to actually put it to the test, that's where I, I, had the, I said, I mentioned before, train your trust and trust your training. That's where you have to have that trust in your training. You're trusting what you did. Hey, I just put in some good work over here uh, in the drills. Let's put it to the test. And if you can have that idea and you can trust what you're doing there, maybe it's a little self-talk. Maybe instead of motivational, it's instructional self-talk. And you can boil down all that information you had to one simple thing that you want to say to yourself as you're, or as you're taking that jump shot to make sure that your attention goes to whatever you were working on. I'm a horrible, I was a very, very bad jump shooter, particularly as a basketball player. So maybe it's like, maybe you say yourself finish if you're trying to really work on exaggerating your finish with your wrist. You don't have to think a hell of a lot while you're doing it. But if you tell yourself finish as you're going through your jump shot, you're bringing your attention to what you need without taking 30 seconds to think about it before the ball gets to you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So talk to me about the transition from sports into the military. What was that like? And what were the new and similar challenges that came along with that? So it was a very weird setting where I felt, I thought I knew a lot. And in my job, this is like every six months, you feel like you, you got it and you don't, you have, and you just are continuing trying to get better and improving. Um, it was a lot to just understand what it's like being, what it's, what the environment is like. So how do I teach the same skills in an environment where I know nothing about? I take pride in having, at least in the sports setting, uh, as a grad student growing up, I was that kid who watched ESPN every morning. I knew enough about pretty much everything that I could fake it a little bit, and I could kind of figure out what I needed to do. And what, what, not just what I needed to do, but like what the setting was like, what the verbiage was. When I got to the military and started working with the soldiers, it was completely different. And I had to really lean on my observation skills that I really learned a lot at Springfield 
and then also just trusting my coworkers that who were really amazing at helping me learn the setting and then learn, hey, what is it going, what, what do these soldiers respond to best? Because they're there for 22 weeks. They don't get a lot of technology. They don't get a lot of freedom in those 22 weeks when they're in basic training and once they in the OSIT, which is one station unit training. So how do I connect with them the best I can without wearing the uniform? And it took a lot of time for me to do that. But the one thing I've leaned back to a, a tremendous amount is the skills that I teach everybody, the skills I teach, or should I, should I, the skills I teach soldiers are the same skills for the same reasons that I was teaching baseball players. That was teaching gymnasts and football players and swimmers, you name it, that I've worked with. It's just a matter of learning how to connect it and being curious. In my first units, I would tell them, hey, I don't know a ton about the military. You all, you all teach me military and I'll teach you sports psych. Sound good? And they're like, hell yeah. You built a really great relationship with my units and that's that mentality. And just like I was saying about how you have to kind of learn from your failures and your successes, that happened with me. I would sit down every every after every training, what worked, what didn't, what do I carry over to the tomorrow? What do I leave behind? And that feedback loop has helped me tremendously to get better and be someone that I would hope that the person who I was when I, when I first moved here three years ago would be, we'd probably hopefully be proud of their development. Yeah. I wanted to ask, do you think that, or do you find that there is an overlap between clinical work and performance work? So you mentioned the, the whole thing with uh, these guys don't have a lot of freedom for, for 22, for 22 weeks. Is, is, I imagine that that would wear down on somebody's mental health. How does that impact their performance? And I guess, talk about how, talk about the, the distinction between clinical and performance work and, and then also talk about uh, the overlap. How do you, how do you balance those two in your, in, in your work? So for, so for people who don't understand the difference in between someone who's a male skills coach and a sports psychologist, Sports psychologist, a male skills coach, or a, male, or a CMPC certified male performance consultant like myself, we are certified and we are trained in being able to coach the performance aspect. The how do you help somebody think more effectively to do what they're doing? And a certain degree of that is also just balancing life stress and how, like, just you're having a tough week at school, your girlfriend broke up with you, your partner's. You know, the kids are struggling at home. How do you help manage all of that to help you be able to perform on the field? Because everything blends together. We are not perfectly compartmentalized human beings. That's all fair game for us. Now, for myself, I'm not a clinician. I don't have a license in mental health. And as a licensed mental health counselor, I'm not a psychologist. So if somebody were to present with clinical anxiety, with depression symptoms, Someone who's suicide, someone has suicidal ideations, or has like as presents with an eating disorder, things like that. I can still work with them you know, on the performance side, but I would have to then refer them to a clinician, someone who is licensed as a practitioner. And there are some people in our profession who have both. I have a number of friends who have, who took the extra year at Springfield, for instance, to get the clinical mental health certification uh, licensure. 
and either do that primarily or do a little bit of both. And that's a whole, that's a big piece in our field that our field is still trying to figure out as we go. Um, now, the second part to how I handle that, I have had soldiers, I've had uh, athletes who have presented with, hey, you're starting to look at some depression symptoms. And then, okay, this is starting to raise some red flags. Let me pull out a DSM-5 and the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual where all the different psychological conditions are broken down. Okay, do you have, does it look like you still meet some of these qualities? Okay, let's get you referred out to a practitioner to, to uh, so you can be at your best. Because just like if you're thinking ineffectively, if you have clinical depression that's untreated, it's going to negatively impact how you perform. It's going to mess with your mess with hormone uh, on all kinds of different levels. It might impact your sleep. It might impact your mood, all kinds of different things there. Or it's going to impact your mood. Um, and those things are just going to make it harder for you to perform. And then to your second question, which was how does it impact? You said the second question was how does it impact people's ability to perform? And how does like the mental health versus performance piece? Yeah. The mental health side, we juggle with that a lot in our field. And I view my, my the people I work with as humans first. So if they're not, if something is working against them, <clears throat> if something is going, you know, uh, something is really hard for them right now, something is struggling, they're really struggling with something, they're not going to be able to perform at their best. They're just not. And it means they're going to be overcompensating somewhere else. They're going to be using negative coping strategies in all kinds of other uh, areas. So potentially, so it's, it's something where we're going to work on getting mental health right before we work on everything else. That's where I, that's kind of how I view things, if that answers your question. Yeah, of course. So I want to go in depth about what it looks like to work with the uh, people in the military as much as we can. So what is it, what is it like to train someone for one of the most dangerous situations that, that you can be in as a human? So the way I think about it and the way I think about it for me, so for reference, for my friends, I work with primarily basic trainees in combat, in combat arms, so infantry and cavalry armor. And I don't, in my lane, one of the things you have to learn, you know, you have to learn as a civilian who's never served. I don't know what it's like to go out into Iraq, Afghanistan, all of the different fields, some of the field, the different places that we have gone into, the theaters of war that we've been in. I don't know what it's like to look down the sights of a of a weapon and engage an enemy, a human enemy. I don't try, so I don't try and teach them that. What I really focus on in my work is how do I get them through overcoming their fears? How do I get them through struggling to perform at what they do? I treat for them, at least in these moments, how do they qualify on their M4, their right, their right, the rifle they have to qualify on, just like somebody who is trying to pass a PT test in a certain degree for their sport. How do I help you get past this? And then you're going to learn and grow as a, uh, as, as a soldier and get better over time. Let me help you get through these obstacles. Let me give you the skills and tools so that you can utilize them 
as you need them. Because I have you for 22 weeks. I don't see, I won't see you again after those 22 weeks, most likely. So when you do go back to the line, when you do go up, if I, I can give you as many things as you need potentially to pull on. I can show you the times and the places that are most effective to pull on those so that you as a soldier then can effectively use them hopefully throughout the rest of your career. Yeah. I want to lock in on, so you mentioned fear. You, you, you're coaching guys to overcome their fears. Yeah. How do you work with that emotion? When someone you work with is struggling to perform because of this emotion, what are the steps that you take? I think in all walks of life, people on a daily basis have to, like fear presents itself in a million different ways, both large and small. So what's what's your advice to, to people on how they can uh, work through that emotion? So I kind of take a couple of different directions from for it. First, when somebody has a fear of something, the first thing I'm going to do with that is I'm going to destigmatize as much as I can. For instance, they are, we have to go, our trainees go through in basic training in the army. You have to go off, you have to go and rappel down the uh, rappel tower. And depending on, so the tower is different heights, it's usually about 30 to 40 feet. And you get a lot of people who are scared of heights. And I've rappelled before, before I joined this job. And I've also been at the top of the tower. And I tell them straight up, I'm like, every time I go up to the top of that tower, I look over the top and I go, and but then I tell them, hey, when I've done this before, I kind of look and it's like, hey, that's high, that's high as hell. It's not that ain't fun. But then it's okay. Let's go. It's kind of the acknowledgement of that fear, the acknowledgement of what you're feeling. Because if you try and push it away, you're going to be using more energy, and it's going to stick around. This idea of what uh, what we uh, what we resist persists. There's a great uh, great little activity that I saw, but I think Gary Bennett, it was Gary Bennett. Uh, he used to work for, I think he might still work at Virginia Tech. It was a mindfulness activity of where you have somebody hold like a, a book in front of their head, in front of their face like this, and you tell, ask them, what do you see? And you'd be sitting across from, uh, from some that person, and they'd say, oh, they see the book. And then he would say, I'm going to try and push, the, push that book into you, you push it away. And they were trying to push away, and every time that person pushed harder, he would push back. And it would the more they pushed, push harder, like what's happening? Oh, you're you're uh, the harder I push, the harder it's resisted. And then you have that person put the book in their lap and say, "What do you see now? I see everything. What's in your lap? The book." So if you take the fear and you push against it, it's going to stay harder. It's going to stay there, firmer and more persistent than it would if you just kind of let it go and you put it down. And the first step for the groups I work with is put it down. Let it be there because it's still going to be there. You're not disregarding it. You're just putting it down so you can do more. And then once I've kind of talked to them about the acceptance, I've taken away that stigma that, oh, I shouldn't be afraid, I shouldn't be afraid, I shouldn't be afraid. Then it's about let's answer the questions here anxiety and uh, anxiety and fear and all those things come from a lack of certainty about the future and uncertainty about what's going to happen. So and I tell them, Hey, I've been, I've been through this before. I've seen Sergeant majors. I've seen super high ranking, important people repel off this tower that uh, with the same equipment that you've used, 
I look, I'm like, do you think the cadre would? Do you think cadre would put their lives at risk and put them through something that isn't safe? No, so, and they're like, no. I'm like, then you're in the, you're just as safe as they are. And that starts to kind of start to calm them down a little bit too. And when we have the time before they get up to the, before they have to go up to the top of the tower, it's about putting some of those fears to rest a little bit and answering some of those questions. And then it's about just how do we execute the task in this moment? It's deliberate breathing to help you, it's deliberate breathing and grounding to help you calm your nerves. It's really simplifying your thought process and doing one thing at a time. So for me, like I've been through the tower, for instance, with them, like I've been to the tower 100, probably 100 times already. I tell them certain different mechanical things. I tell them, hey, practice these things that you have to do physically, the instructions you've got while you're on the ground. So you can build that movement. You can reinforce the movement patterns that when you get up to the top of that tower and your brain's going a thousand miles a minute, you don't have to think as hard. Where's the small of my back? Where do I, what's the movement I need to do? You practice that movement pattern on the ground. Hey, got it. I know what I, I know what right feels like. And all those things is kind of how I start to overcome fear. One little piece at a time and just trying to help them understand what's going on. Because again, answering those questions of uncertainty and then helping them think in as linear of a way as possible. One thing at a time, one thing at a time, one thing at a time, practice it mentally. But if you can do that, it's a lot easier to handle one thing when your brain is in that, that fight or flight state than handle seven. You can't handle seven. Your brain's going to really struggle to handle seven, most likely. But you can execute one thing, and then it's the next thing, and then it's the next thing. Yeah. So I was curious, you mentioned that the first step was to destigmatize the fear. Mm -hmm. You ever notice that paradoxically, when you accept the fear, it goes away? Absolutely. Or, it know. doesn't go away. You just be you just become more able to focus on what you need to do. It's this idea of in Buddha in Buddhism and what uh, this uh, idea of the monkey mind is brought up a lot. You're never able to fully quiet the monkey, but going back to kind of the mindfulness and John Kabat-Zinn's teachings, you don't quiet the mind completely. You just push the monkey, you just fades further and further to the back. And the fear is always going to be there. You're never going to get rid of the fear. If you talk, if you, if you talk to people who have overcome maybe a fear of heights or a fear of flying or a fear of whatever, those thoughts are still sometimes there. The what ifs are there, but your brain is more easily able to answer those questions. Well, what if this happens? Well, not likely going to happen because X, Y, and Z. Excuse me, because of X, Y, and Z. Or, oh, if there's an issue, if uh, with the repelling, for instance, oh, if I slip and fall, there's a repeller right below me. Who, there's a belayer right below me who's going to grab me, and I'm going to fall like five feet, and they're going to catch me. Like they're going to pull the rope, and I'm going to be safe, and I'm going to be perfectly safe. So those questions get answered. And that's where a lot of it is. You never really fully get rid of it. It just kind of slowly fades away until there's just a little bit left and you don't really ever really think about it. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is from FDR. He says, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. And I this honestly mm -hmm. changed, it changed my whole thought process in life, but especially as an athlete, because coming up, I was always, I always wanted to know how can I get rid of the pregame jitters. But what really clicked for me was that 
it doesn't need to affect me if I have them. Like when I look at the, all the, again, in all walks of life, the people who I look up to, there's no way that they aren't nervous. Like mm-hmm. back to Kobe Bryant or, yep. or Steph Curry or whoever it is. Mm-hmm. Like when they're playing in front of thousands of people and then millions more back home, of course they're they're nervous to some extent, but they're able to still play their best. And yeah, I I, I don't know. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, specifically around the the first of all, the quote, the FDR quote is a fantastic quote because you don't get rid of fear. There's this great TED talk by Brene Brown, who is a research psych- who's a psychologist, a social worker, and I highly encourage any of your listeners to go check out her uh, her work. It's amazing. She has some great stuff on vulnerability, on trust, on culture building that I utilize her stuff in my work all the time. But she talks about in the research in research that, had, that she's done and others have done that. If you numb, you can't numb selectively one emotion. You can't numb fear. If you numb fear completely, you numb all of the other emotions. You can't. Our brain, our bodies just don't calm one thing down. It calms everything down. It numbs it all down, so you don't feel anything, which is arguably worse. That's a whole different discussion, though. So I 100% agree. It's not the absence of fear. It's understanding that, hey, fear is going to be there, but some I got to do something else in the moment. Hey, it's, this is a really high power. You know, screw it, let's do it. Um, yeah. I don't want to curse on your podcast, but there's, other, there's, there's things I'll tell my, uh, there's things like my trainees and I will say, like, we'll say my trainees and we'll laugh and we'll joke about like, uh, screw it, let's fall. Yeah. And you can insert whatever favorite four letter word you want in there. If that's what, if you're so inclined, but it's the idea of, okay. This is what's up, but you know what? Screw it. We're going to do something else. We're going to go this other way. And yeah. then what you're talking about with the jitters, actually it's something else I talk about when I talk about, when I speak about, when I speak about the repel power and things like that, high pressure situations. The pregame jitters is your body getting into fight or flight. And it's your body preparing. And if we go back to what fight or flight is, it's not this, oh my God, I'm nervous. Oh my God, this is bad. It's our body getting ready to either fight off a predator when we were living in caves and we were trying to fight off our saber tooth tigers or hunt a woolly mammoth down, or do we run away? It's a survival instinct. And our body is just getting ready to perform. There's the idea of pressure. Pressure is a privilege. If you're nervous, it means this thing matters to you. If you weren't getting ner- if you weren't getting nervous, it would mean that this thing doesn't matter. You don't care. You don't have the opportunity to do show up and do what you need to do. So, if you think about, and I have asked my trainees this question all the time, what is what does it feel like to be physically nervous? When you have those jitters, what does it feel like? And then I also ask them, what does it feel like to be excited? When you're excited, what does it feel like? It's usually the same things. It's usually we're in almost the same list. It's a very similar list, and usually within three people, somebody goes, they're they're pretty much the same, like exactly. It's about how you interpret it, how you understand those pregame jitters. Is it your are you understanding is hey, I'm getting ramped up, I'm ready to go, and then you lock more into the present moment, or are you thinking, oh my god, this is I'm so nervous, this is going to be a hell, this is going to be a hellscape out here, it's going to be really bad. And your brain goes to all the what ifs of the future. And that's yeah. a moment where if you take that moment to breathe, to reassess, oh, my body's just getting ready. I'm jitter. I'm getting a little jittery because my body's getting ready to, you know, go out there and play a basketball game, which 
I want to have the increased heart rate. I want to have the blood flowing to all of my muscles and focus more on my muscles than more on digestion so that I can execute the task at hand rather than playing this game ice cold where I can stiff and lethargic. So that's one of the other things I talk about again on getting that understanding together so that you know what's going on in your body and go, oh, wait, this is it. This is what's up. Answering the questions again is, uh, is a huge part of my philosophy. Yeah. And and I also recognize that it's it can it's easy for me to say that, but sometimes in the moment, it's it's a lot harder. Like when I'm actually feeling that fight or flight, it's a it's very difficult to just accept it. You know, it's easy it's easy to to talk about, but it's hard. It's really hard to actually do. Mm-hmm. So, what does it look like? I guess my question is, what is what does progress look like for the people that that you're preaching these principles to? How how does how are people able to develop this skill of just recognizing their emotions as opposed to fighting them? I think it's how quickly they can start to understand what's going on. How can you start to combat it and just, you said it was progress. Progress, I think, is really just seeing and doing and developing. It's just every day trying and working at it. And like you said, it's not easy. It's really easy for me to, us to sit in this conversation in our in our homes and say it, right? But the moment you go out there and you try and do something in public and your brain starts to go and go fast, it's hard, it gets harder. And again, just trying, working and putting the effort in every day, it's not always going to show the results right away, but some days it is. Maybe it's, hey, I was so freaked out that I didn't think I could do this. And you know what? It might take me 15 minutes to get down the towel to get everything together, to get myself together to do it. But hey, I did it. And then it's maybe it's maybe it's 13 minutes, maybe it's 10 minutes. And it's slowly just getting a little bit better, getting a little quicker, developing a little bit more effective strategies. That's where that progress is. And then it's just quicker understanding and continued practice is the big thing. That's what I would say. That's what I would say. It was what, pro- that's what progress looks like. 